So if you look in your bulletin at your Ephesians passage, this morning we will continue the study we've been doing during ordinary time of the book of Ephesians. And we see this morning that the spotlight moves again. Uh, The spotlight moves from all that Paul seems to have been doing in those first three chapters about God's love and his grace to us. And then this is one of those moments again where you have this kind of startling thing where you know, this is one of the places where people wonder, did, you know, did Paul kind of mess up Christianity with these moralisms? Um, you know, did he kind of miss what Jesus was up to? You know, Jesus seems so cool, and Paul can seem so uptight. Um, you know, people, it's just these are sort of jarring sentences that we come to, and we just have to see if we can face them in, in some sort of spiritually uh, intelligent way. So I think what would help us as we begin here is, of course, you know, no sentence, no saying, no letter comes out of the blue. They all arise out of a context. And there's a context here for Paul saying, so I say to you in the Lord, and I insist on it. I mean, that's pretty strong stuff, right? I say to you in the Lord or by the Lord, and I insist on it. And then he talks about the Gentiles. Well, what's happening here? Well, what's happening in the background here is that what Paul's thinking of in his mind as he writes this, as he thinks of Ephesus and the cities around it, is that there was a religious world that existed, that existed but no morals. Now, you've got to think about that for a second. There was a very powerful, very public, very in-your-face religious world, but almost completely devoid of any kind of morals. And you might say, well, you know, how does that work? Well, because what the people on the street were aware of, kind of the People magazine, Oprah kind of street that was happening at the time, was all about the Greek gods. So it was Zeus and Hera and Artemis. And these were stories that, you know, could have just arisen right out of People magazine or something or some crime drama show on TV. They were full of sensuality and murder and intrigue, and the gods were fighting, and the people were trying to placate the gods. And so their religion had really very little to do with what we would think of as morality, growth and morality, or to use a term that I'd prefer, our own spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness. Now, the philosophers of the day, they thought about this stuff, and the philosophers of the day taught what we now think of as morals, but the religious scene wasn't like that. And so what Paul's picturing here, Paul's being a pastor here, which that's the first thing to be said. You just have to understand that Paul was not sitting in a library doing systematic theology and wondering what John Calvin would think about what he's writing. Hello? A bit of an anachronism there, right? I mean, he wasn't wondering, you know, what the great reformers would think about what he was writing. He was being a pastor, sort of an apostolic pastor, who was just trying to deal with what he saw as real around him. And so when he says to them, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, he talks about something that I at least find interesting, and that is he begins with the challenge of the mind. But if you look at your passage, he's concerned about the futility of their thinking, He sees that they're darkened in their understanding and that what separates them from the life of God is their ignorance. Interesting, huh? He doesn't list all these sins, you know, sort of overt things that they might have been doing with their bodies, but he talks about the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
meaning to say they were so steeped in what they thought of as reality. This is kind of an ancient way. Had Paul been seeing this today, he might have said something like this. You are so fastidiously focused on keeping it real that you can't see that your reality is fundamentally broken. Yeah, you're keeping it real. But what's real inside of you, what's most real about you, what's most real in your mind is actually futile, and it's darkening your understanding, and it's actually disconnecting you from God. But yeah, you're keeping it real according to the street and according to what you think real religion or real spirituality uh, ought to be. And Paul's saying that what you think is real, what you're, what you're really so committed to in yourself, what you're so steeped in, is actually separating you from God. So he says, if you look, that you're actually losing all sensitivity. That is to say, Paul's seeing that they are so grounded in this Gentile worldview that they can't respond really morally or spiritually. So he says of them, you've given yourselves over to sensuality, indulging in every kind of impurity and greed. Now, that's about the strongest language available to Paul. I mean, the Greek scholars will tell you he pretty much exhausts the language there. I mean, there couldn't have been no stronger negative adjectives. There was really nothing available to him in the lexicon at the time where he could have been more straightforward and kind of intense, you might say, in what he's saying. And the first thing that I want to say, because for me this morning, this message is basically going to be kind of an an introduction to or something of basic spiritual transformation and how does it work. And the first thing this alerts us to is the reason transformation is way more preferable to me than just spiritual formation is that transformation alerts us to the notion that none of us come to Christ as a blank whiteboard. We don't come as this lovely new palette that Christ can then, you know, make something on. No, we come deformed, malformed. All Paul's talking about as a pastor is here's how you guys are malformed. And you tend to be malformed by your thinking all being muddled by the religion that's on the streets. And these people, the common people, couldn't deal with the philosophers. They couldn't read the philosophers. They couldn't understand the philosophers. They were literally, it was the People magazine of the day. It was the sort of talk shows of the day. And Paul's saying you're so steeped in that And you followed it so deeply and so much that you can't even actually see anymore what's broken. And so it's very important that when we think of our own discipleship to Jesus, our own apprenticeship to Jesus, is that we don't come blank. We come with stuff that's malformed. And when the Spirit of God, as we just got done singing, you know, begins to move in us and mess with us, often what he's doing is he's he's taking what's malformed and he's forming it. And, and, and this, of course, uh, alerts us to change, and to change that sometimes can be a little painful because I've always only been this, and if I don't keep doing and being this, am I really keeping it real? And this is the first thing that Paul's wanting to help us see, that no, you'll actually become more real and more human as you allow God to do that. This is malformed. This is how he wants to actually form you and shape you. So then now there's this strong contrast, again, if you look at your passage, where he says that, however, meaning that whole way of thinking and viewing the world is not the way of life. Did you catch that? Not the way of life. This is, again, why formation is so important. 
Christianity is not first and foremost about understanding bullets of doctrines. It's about a way of life. And he says that's not the way of life when you learned, when you heard about Christ, and the truth that is in Jesus. Now, the word there for learned is the same word that Jesus uses in the Gospels when he asks people to come follow him, to come be his student is the best word today. Or if you, if you work in something like plumbing or electricity or something, you might think best of an apprentice. But that's what Jesus is asking people to do. And so this is what, this is what Paul's referring to when he says, well, that's not you know, that way that I've been just talking about with the Gentiles, that's not what you heard when you were taught. Now, just listen to the language here. You learned, you heard truth, you were taught. See how Paul's kind of unpacking, uh, well, he kind of unpacked the futility of darkened thinking and is now saying, if you reconsider it, which, by the way, is a great word to think about, a great way to think about repenting, if you'll reconsider this, if you'll repent, if you'll think about your thinking, <clears throat> then you can see that this is not the way you were taught. Now, here's one of the most important things we need to say out of this passage this morning. When Paul says, put off the old and put on the new, this is not some sort of new moral command that is sort of just sneaking up on these guys. I mean, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to hear the tense here, that you were taught what Paul's reminding them of here is that essential to conversion, fundamental to being born again, is this process of putting off the old and putting on the new. It's fundamental. This is what you were taught. He's reminding them that when you heard about Jesus, when you heard about the truth that was in Jesus, you heard about this way of life. And when we look at this way of life, we sometimes see that well, how we come to it is malformed. And that, so we're putting off the old and we're putting on the new so that our life comes into alignment with the life in the kingdom of God that Jesus invites us into as his apprentices. We're following him into this specific sort of life, life in the kingdom of God, eternal life, life that never ends but that takes on a new character even now. So now, Paul says, so with regard to your former way of life, you Gentiles, he's writing to here. Now, you remember, there are plenty of times when, you know, Paul sort of pops the Jews on the chin a little bit too, right? But not in this passage. Here, Paul's not thinking about Jews who need to change their way of thinking. He's now talking to Gentiles, outsiders to the story of God. And so he says, look at your passage, with regard to your form of lay of life, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Now, <clears throat> I wish I could say more about this because it's so important. The, 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 the function of uh, ill-formed desire in us is so crucial to what's broken. And I can't say anything about it in a brief sermon, but I wrote a brilliant book about it. <laughs> and I just wish you all would read it. Uh, it's called Our Favorite Sins. Go read it. Buy 10. Give it to your friends. It's a brilliant book. <laughs> um, just playing. <laughs> uh, but it's, I mean, this is just so core to everything that, that we think about, is these desires that are just powerfully in us. And especially today when we're taught implicitly from billboards to radio shows to TV shows that what's most basic, if you're really keeping it real, you'll fulfill your desires. And that is just so powerful of a force, not only in the world, 
but in my heart. Maybe your heart too. But battling these very, very deep desires. So what are we going to do with this? You know, there's this sort of cranky Paul. Like, did he, did he have like a really soaring moment of, I want you to know the breadths and depths and heights and glory of God's love. And then he was a little tired and ran out to Starbucks and his latte was hot and he spilled it on his tunic. And so now he's sort of ticked off and he comes back from his break. And now he's sort of mean Paul. Like, is that what's happening here? This is sort of cranky Paul. I want you to put off your old self, put on the new. I mean, what's happening here? And here's the way I would encourage you to think about this. Think of this business as, of putting off as kind of like negative space. You know how in a, in a piece of art, the whole thing isn't filled with subjects. There's negative space that allows your eye to rest. It allows your eye and your mind to kind of take a breath so that you can then be really present to the real subject, which in this case is the action of God in our life. Did you catch that? The real subject here, this is why this isn't neurotic Paul. Paul's already established that the real subject, the real actor in this is the grace and goodness and love of God. And so when Paul says, now, put off the old, what he's talking about is clear some things out of the frame so that you can see the real actor, so that you can see the real subject. In music, we do the same thing. I remember with the metronome trying to count rests when I was learning to play piano. I found it really hard. But there are rests in music. Um, if you do landscape architecture, there, you don't want to flood a space with so much stuff that you don't see any of it. You're taught to be appropriate and so that your eye can stop somewhere, your heart can stop somewhere. So don't think of this as legalisms. Don't think of this as moralisms. This is practical pastoral advice that says if you really want to be able to be alert to the real actor, the real subject in the frame, then you've got to set some things aside. And this is why the spiritual masters have always talked about the benefit of silence and solitude. It's why we create spaces in our service. It's why we have silence at places in our service. It's so that we can pause and let sort of the eye of our heart land on the action of the real subject, God who's working in our heart. So Paul says that what I want you to do then, positively speaking, is to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. And this is just sort of a Pauline way of talking about what Jesus talked about when he said to repent. That is to say, to live a life of ongoing renovation, regeneration, reorientation. Now, this is one of the big tricky bits. Because what this tells us, these verbs of putting off and putting on, it tells us that there is something for us to do as Christians. That apprenticeship, discipleship, being a student involves our activity. That the object, so the subject, God working on the object, us, does not set aside us doing anything. It simply gives the flavor and the character and nature of what it is that we're doing. And what Paul says here, and what this alerts us to, is yes, there is something for us to do, and although we cannot do it on our own, its, pre, it's, it's predecessor, so to speak, is the love of God, it's present power is the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. So we can't do it on our own. But if you don't hear anything else I, I say this morning, you need to hear this. 
It won't be done for you. God is not going to make you into a robot. You're going to have to cooperate. Something for us to do. We obviously, the Reformers, rightly, and the Patristics, the Fathers, told us we can't do it on our own. Absolutely true. But it will not be done for us. We're not little lumps of clay that, you know, God works against our will. That there's, a, there's an essential sort of loving cooperation that's intended here. Now, we go wrong about this, and this is why I like, loved our gospel reading this morning, because we tend to think when we go wrong about this, we tend to think that right Christian behavior is simply a matter of using our will to get our bodies under control. And I've told you before that that just doesn't work, because our will, remember, is like Congress, and it's constantly lobbied by our emotions and our thoughts. They badger our wills, and this is why you can't stay on a diet, right? This is why, whatever, you can't get out of debt. I mean, just think about it. You, you want to, you say you want to, but you can't because you're constantly being badgered by these other aspects of what it means to be human that we don't have time to go into today. But what Jesus, in his typical brilliance, shows us, using the dietary controversies of his day, Jesus shows us how such thinking that we can just use our will to get our bodies under control is actually totally backward. And what he's showing us here, remember his phrase, unless you, be go, unless you go on, sorry, unless you go beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you have no place with me or my kingdom. Remember that? Jesus is now showing us how to do that. And what he's pointing out is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees settled for externals. And that's why they fought about these dietary things. And Jesus says, Nothing from outside a person by going into them can defile them because it doesn't enter the heart. It enters the stomach and is expelled. But the things that come out of a person, that's what defiles them. For from within, Jesus said, out of the heart of men and women come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and etc. So the focus on externalisms and the focus on moralisms is a core problem to how we think of dealing with spiritual formation today. But I want you to consider this last big thought. Remember in the Gospel of John chapter 4, Jesus finds himself at this well with the Samaritan woman. Remember that story? So he's talking to this really broken woman who is actually caught up in the kind of story that we've been talking about today, who's trying to secure herself through a series of relationships with men. And remember Jesus says to her, if you drink of the water that's in this well, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give you, it will become in you a spring, a well of water, welling up into eternal life. Well, again, it doesn't take a brilliant theologian to, to say, you have to drink the water. If you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. And moreover, it, the water I give you will become this internal, eternal artisan well in you, springing up and overflowing to the good of others, but you have to drink the water. See, there is something for us to do. It's just that it's done in this sort of loving cooperation with God, not to earn anything. So how do we do this? Well, the first thing is we trust. And Peter tells us in, in our lesson today, if you want to look at that, we trust His divine power that's already at work in us so that we can then participate in the divine nature. 
But then look at at Peter's next thought. For this very reason, make every effort. Because you know the love of God and the grace of God that's already working in you, just make every effort. Well, it's as simple as there's electricity in the wall. Plug in. Like when was the last time you plugged in an iron and you thought, wow, I really earned that electricity? Are you feeling me here? Like, I, like I'm, I'm, I really earned that. No, you're just cooperating with the system that's already there. And the system is the love and power and graciousness and goodness of God, always His initiation. But we cooperate with it. The second thing is we relax into this. I love a story that Eugene and Jan Peterson tell when they lived in Baltimore. They used to walk in this park every afternoon. And one day as they're walking, a bicyclist sped past them and got up, I don't know, 50 or 100 yards ahead of them and stopped and turned around. And they're like, what? Like, what? I wonder what this guy wants. And so they, they got up to him. And the guy said to them, did you realize that you guys are walking in perfect step together? And they said, well, no. But they'd been walking together for, you know, decades. And they had actually, in their walking together, had become in perfect step. Well, as the guy rode off and they tried to do it, they couldn't do it. They tried for days and weeks afterwards, and they realized that the more self-conscious they got about it, the harder it was. And this is what formation is like. We have to just relax into it, and we will find ourselves walking in step with Jesus. The next thing is this, is that we, we begin to think about our thinking. And you might just begin with this this morning. Currently, what kind of person am I becoming? Because you are becoming some sort of person. I am becoming some sort of person. None of us are neutral. So what kind of person am I presently becoming? And what's my present role in what I'm becoming? And then last, I want to say what I said earlier, just to underline again, to encourage you to think of Paul's negatives, of putting off the old, these removals, as to think of them as negative space. Think of them as a kind of clearing that allows the eye of our soul to find a place to rest, where it's not so busy looking at all the subjects in the frame that the pulling out of some things, it causes the eye of our heart to rest, to become alert to the divine power, to become aware of the Holy Spirit working in that frame and how He might be asking us right now to cooperate with Him, how we might get in step with Him in our own formation. So I want you to just pause right now and maybe close your eyes, bow your head, and take a few seconds of relaxed rest right here and become alert to the divine power. Become alert to the Spirit's action in you. Asking yourself this morning, how might he be asking you to cooperate with him now, to get in step with him in your own spiritual transformation? Amen.